1: Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Bible, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue our study in the book of 2 Samuel, God continues to establish David, and David seeks out Jonathan's relatives in order to show them kindness. We'll pick it up in 2 Samuel 8, verse 9. Once again, that's 2 Samuel 8,
2: Nine. When Toi, king of Hamath, Hamath is north of Zobah, which is north of Syria, when Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had smitten all the host of Hadad Ezer, then Toi sent Joram, his son, unto King David to salute him, to to bless him, and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and smitten him, for Hadadezer had wars with Toy. And Joram brought him vessels of silver, vessels of gold, and vessels of brass. Well, Hamath didn't become a vassal nation of David. This is a voluntary gift of friendship. And so David takes that gift, and we're going to see here that he takes that and all the other plunder, and he gives it to the Lord. Verse 11, which also David did dedicate unto the Lord with the silver and gold that he had dedicated of all the nations which he subdued. And then it lists them here. Of Syria, we already covered that. Of Moab, we covered that. Oh, the children of Ammon. This is a battle we haven't heard about yet. We're going to find out about it in chapter 10. And of the Philistines and of Amalek. Again, some other battle. And of the spoil of Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. This was David's habit, basically, is what it's telling us. With all the tribute and all the spoils of war that came, he didn't put it to himself. He he gave it to the Lord. It was all going to be for the Lord's service. Now, for all these victories that David's had, there is one specific battle that really made David famous. Look at verse 13. And David King James says, get him a name. (laughs) I like that. Get him a name. Uh, It means David made himself famous or he was made famous when he returned from the smiting of the Syrians. So when David got done dealing with the Syrian invasion up there, whatever they were invading, it says he made himself famous with something else he did. And it happened in the Valley of Salt. If you just read this, it looks like it says David fought the Syrians in the Valley of Salt, but that's There should be a comma or something there, a semicolon something, because in the Valley of Salt is where this famous battle occurs that we'll learn about in a second, where it was. It says he defeated 18,000 men there. And verse 14 tells us where it was. He put garrisons in Edom. Now, the Valley of Salt, of course, is a reference to the Dead Sea, and Edom is just southeast of the Dead Sea. So this is not talking about his battle with the Syrians. This is his next battle after returning from the north, the place where he becomes famous. Now, it doesn't give us any details about the battle. It just says David won. Why does this make him famous? Well, turn to Psalm 60, because David writes this psalm after this battle. And I think this will give us a little bit of a clue of just how bad the situation was. Psalm 60 the title to this psalm says, To the chief musician upon uh, Shushanaduth, which means it's set to a certain song. I, I, I've never sung the song Shushanaduth, uh, so if you know it, you can teach it to me. Uh, but they knew what it was back then, so that kind of a tune or that key or whatever that means, uh, this song that he writes is set along the same tune. <clears throat> it's a mictum of David, which means it's a teaching. It's meant to, to, for, to make you think about something, to teach. When he strove with Aram Naharaim and with Aram Zobah, when Joab returned, so this is a song David wrote that after they'd had this huge victory up north, and then all of a sudden they find themselves in a really bad situation down south. When Joab returned and smote Edom in the Valley of Salt, 12,000. Joab came down, and smote 12,000, apparently six more thousand died as well. The Chronicles tells us that Abishai was responsible for that part. So these two guys were, were battle commanders, and it gives us some indication how the fight went, but we'll cover that when we get to First Chronicles. But I want to look at Psalm 60 here because it's a really cool psalm. Look at what verse 1 says. Oh God, you have cast us off. You have scattered us. You have been displeased. Oh, turn yourself to us again. Whoa! Now, we have no indication about why this happens in Israel, what's going on. But while David's on this campaign up north, all of a sudden he comes back and he finds the nation is a mess. And somehow God has removed his favor from the nation to the point where he says, Lord, you've cast us off and returned to us. Lord, you're gone. We need you to return to us. You have made the earth to tremble. You have broken it. Lord, we're in, we're in hot water right now. Heal the breaches there. we got holes everywhere, so much so that the earth shakes. Verse 3, you have showed your people hard things. You have made us to drink the wine of astonishment. In other words, the, the concept here is, Lord, we're, we're kind of like uh, the, the person who's, who's drunk and then somebody kind of just slaps them. And, and it, you're like, oh my gosh, what have I done? Where am I? What's going on? That's the idea here that he's conveying here. When David gets back, it's like a slap in the face. It's like, Lord, you've you've said some hard things. So apparently some prophets came or somebody came and said, David, the kingdom's been doing this while you've been gone, and this is why you're in trouble right now. And David's going, this is a mess. Verse 4, you have given a banner to them that fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth, that your beloved may be delivered. Lord, you gave us something to cling to. You gave us hope. Apparently a prophet had said, Listen, if you guys repent and you do this, then God will come back and he'll restore you. And so, verse 6: God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and meet out the valley of Succoth. Gilead's mine, Manasseh's mine, Ephraim. And it lists all these other places. Edom will I cast out with my out of my shoe, verse eight. So all these places here where he says, God comes to him and says, listen, David, I gave you victory after victory, after victory, after victory. And if you'll just turn back to me, if you guys will turn back to me, I'll take care of Edom too. And so I, again, we don't know what happened, but somehow the Edomites invaded Israel and they, they were winning. And Israel was in a bad, bad spot. So much so that verse 9, David says, who will bring me into the strong city who will lead me into Edom? David says, Lord, I don't, I don't know how to do the, win this fight. I, I don't know how to turn this around. And so he calls out. In verse 5, he had said, save with your right hand and hear me. Lord, this is my prayer. Lord, who's going to lead us to victory here? Not us. Verse 10, will not you, O God, which has, had, had cast us off, which you had in the past cast us off. And you, O oh God, which did not go out with our armies. Apparently, Joab went down, and yeah, he killed 12,000, but they were still losing. And so this is where David's fame begins to come from. Israel's in massive trouble. And instead of trying to figure it out on his own, David cries out to the Lord. Verse 11, give us help from trouble for vain is the help of man. Apparently, they had been looking to themselves. Someone had. And David, David says, That's, I, I'm not looking to that now. And then in verse 12, he says, through God we shall do valiantly for he it is that shall tread down our enemies. And so David sought the Lord. And again, we don't get the details of the battle, but God gave them an overwhelming victory. And the reason that this made David famous is because this is when all the other nations around Israel started to realize David was special because the Lord was with him. That David was different than other kings they'd experienced, other nations they'd had experience with. You know, it's funny if we just read chapter 8 all by itself, we can read it and easily think, man, David's a dude you don't want to mess with. I mean, he's a, he's a general of generals. This guy, he's on the rampage, man. He's creating a little empire here as if Israel's military was some kind of invincible force. But remember, that's not what the word preserved means. And that's what it says here in verse 14. And he put garrisons in Edom. So throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all they of Edom became David's servants. But look at what it says at the end. And the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. The same phrase, same word, rescued, saved, delivered. All these situations, David, the odds were never in his favor but every time God rescued them, he was the one who won the battles. Through our God we shall do valiantly, for he it is that shall tread down our enemies. That's what David concluded at the end of this psalm. Lord, who's going to get us into Edom? Who's going to fix the situation? Is it not you, O Lord? Will not you help us who had cast us off? We return to you. Lord, will you return to us? And the Lord did. Psalm 60, verse 12 needs to be our marching orders and how we're going to tackle every battle that we find ourselves in. Through our God, we shall do valiantly. On our own, we shall fall on our face. (laughs) Through our God, though, we shall do valiantly. For he it is that shall tread down our enemies. When the enemy is overwhelming you, you look to the Lord. Don't try to fix it yourself. Well, verse 15, we see here kind of a, an organization of David's court, and we get the explanation of who his closest advisors were. It says in verse 15, and David reigned over all Israel, and David executed judgment and justice unto all his people. One of those words means justice, you know, the idea of, of you know, true justice, the idea of not uh, treating other people differently because they had more money or because they had more clout or whatever. It was true justice. The other word means honesty, Righteousness, integrity. David had many weaknesses and many failures, but he was a good king because, for the most part, he sought to be a faithful servant to God's people. Verse 16 And Joab, the son of Zeriah, was over the host. He was the general. David keeps trying to fire him, but he keeps finding ways to win the position. And Jehoshaphat, the son of uh, Ehilud, it says he was the recorder. He was the official record keeper or the clerk. If you ever watched Veggie Tales, Esther and, you know, and you got uh, Larry as the cucumber taking all the records while Nebuchadnezzar's got his sleeping cap on, that's what this guy was. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. That's going to become important later on. Why do we have two high priests They're both from different lines. One is from the line of Eli, and the other one is from a different line from the family of Aaron. Remember, God cursed the line of Eli. At some point, that line is going to come to an end, and we will see that as we move through uh, 2 Samuel and into 1 Kings. So we're just introducing who they are here, Zadok and Abiathar. Sariah, it says here, was the scribe. This is the guy in charge of military records. It's probably where we got all this information in this chapter from. Verse 18, Beniah the son of Jehoiada, he was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites. That's interesting. These are two Philistine groups who fought for David. David had an influence on the Philistines when he was there with them. And so after he conquered Philistia, these two groups of mercenaries said, we want to work for you now. We like you. We want to work for you. And so this guy was in charge of them. And then David's sons, it tells us they were chief rulers. It just means royal advisors. Now we come to chapter nine and We see that in chapter 8, God kept his promise. So now David's going to have an opportunity to keep his promise that he made to Jonathan. And we're going to find out here will David be after God's heart? Will he reflect God's heart that God showed to him? Verse 1. And David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? The word there, kindness, is that Hebrew word chesed. And it is the Hebrew equivalent of agape. It means loyal love, unwavering devotion, unfailing kindness. What loyal love is he talking about here that I might show loyal love because of Jonathan? Well, we have to go back to 1 Samuel to understand. 1 Samuel chapter 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20. And this is when David has to leave Jonathan because, John, remember, Jonathan goes back and he says, I'll find out if my dad really wants to kill you. And, uh, and, of course, that's when Saul tries to kill Jonathan because he thinks he's in cahoots with David. And so, verse 14, this is the promise that Jonathan and David make to each other. And you shall, Jonathan speaking here, and you shall not only while yet I live show me the kindness of the Lord that I die not, that we're not going to be at war, even though my father's trying to kill you, but also you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off the enemies of David, everyone from the face of the earth. And so Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, let the Lord even require it at the hand of David's enemies. So Jonathan makes a covenant. He says, David, I'm going to support you. And David, I would ask you not to wipe out my family when you become king. New kings, normally handled the family of an old rival by wiping out anyone who could claim the throne. Many likely expected that David would do that with any of Saul's surviving family members. And so it's totally counterculture here for David to ask the question, are there any left from Saul's family that I can show him loyal love because of Jonathan? You know, it's interesting David makes his agreement with Jonathan, makes his covenant with him. Jonathan's dead now. David doesn't passively keep his promise by just going, I just won't harm anybody from Saul's house. David actively searches out any surviving family members of Saul to show them love. Verse 2. And there was of the house of Saul, family of Saul, a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called him unto David, the king said unto him, Are you Zeba? And he said, Your servant is he. And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God unto him? Isn't that an interesting phrase? Not just my kindness, but the kindness of God, the kindness that God has showed me, the kindness that God shows to us. Is there not anyone surviving that I can show the kindness of God unto them? And Ziba said unto the king, Well, Jonathan still has a son, which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Makir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So then King David sent, and he fetched him, Jonathan's son, out of the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Ziba, he was probably a master servant in Saul's family, um, probably responsible for the finances and a lot of other things. Uh, And so this is why, you know, David says, is there anybody? And someone says, well, I think Saul's master servant's still alive. And so they bring him in to interview him. He says, do you know? I mean, I know that we just fought a civil war, but do you know if any of them are still alive? I mean, I know they killed Ishbosheth. Is anybody left? And Ziba says, yeah, Jonathan's got a son. He's crippled, though. He's he's lame. His feet, he can't walk. And the king says, where is he? Hmm. You know... Ziba, he probably may have even thought to himself, David just wants to wipe out whatever's left. It's possible that he's just very willing to give up of any, any of Saul's living family to show his loyalty to David, or it's possible he trusts David. Either way, he tells him where one of Saul's grandsons is. He's in the house of Makir. Makir is a man from the tribe of Manasseh with land on the other side of Jordan. That's where, remember, that's where Ishbosheth kind of had his base of operations. And he's living in Lodabar, which is a city just south of the Dead Sea on the other side of the Jordan. And King David, you know, he, he fetches him. And the reason is because he, he can't walk. During the Civil War, this guy, Makir loved Saul's family, took care of Mephibosheth. And so when David sends someone to bring Mephibosheth to Jerusalem, Mephibosheth figures it's over for him. He figures he's a dead man. Verse 6. Now, when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, make sure it points that out, was come unto David, he fell on his face. Not exactly an easy thing for someone who can't get back up to do. He's in a bad spot. And it says he did reverence, which means he bowed down deeply to the ground. He didn't just get on his knees. I mean, he got on his face with his face to the ground, arms outstretched, bowing before David. I love what David says to him. Mephibosheth, is that you? And he answers, behold thy servant. I love when David says his name because it reminds me of when Jesus asked the demoniac's name. Remember? The guy comes out and he's all, Jesus, you come before our time, throw us into the pit, you know? And, And, you know, Jesus doesn't, he doesn't talk to the demons, he talks to the guy. He goes, what's your name, man? When's the last time anybody asked this guy's name? You know, whenever anybody talked about him, he said he's the demoniac, you know? He was so crazy, they chained him out there. And he had broken the chains. He was so demon-possessed. What's your name? It's probably the first time somebody treated him like a human being in a long time. This guy comes in, he's thinking he's dead. David's going to kill me. I'm it. I'm the last one he's got to wipe out. And he falls on his face. He just says his name, Mephibosheth. I know your name. I know your name. I'm not just a thing to expunge, to preserve my throne. You're someone God made. You're my best friend's son. When he says his name. He says, Behold, your servant. I'm loyal, David. I don't want the throne. I'm your servant. Whatever you want, I'll do it. David quells all that fear immediately. He says unto him, Fear not. How many times do we see the Lord come onto the scene, and those are the first words out of his mouth?
1: Fear not.
2: For I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. And I'll restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat bread at my table continually. David puts feet to his commitment, to his words. You don't have to hide anymore, Mephibosheth. Gabeah, your father's land, it's all yours again. All of it. And you'll be my guest of honor at every feast that we have. And you know, that is the kindness of God. Because that's exactly what Jesus did for you and me. I was lame, unable to rescue myself from certain doom. But Jesus didn't want to expunge me. He wanted to bless me beyond all I deserved. And he elevated me gave me a home. He gave me a position at his table. As you can imagine, Mephibosheth is shocked. He bows himself again to the ground and he says, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I am? The word there look, it's it's interesting. It's hard to translate into English. It means to go a different direction. I mean, obviously, if you're going to go a different direction, you've got to look in that direction first. So that's why they translate it this way. But that you would look at me differently than everyone else does. But what am I? What is your servant that you would look at me differently? Who everyone else considers a dead dog? A dog is a phrase used back then, a term of very low status. Like if you want to insult somebody, you call them a dog. Like it's not, what up, dog? Not like that. It's the opposite of that, okay? So being a dead dog, well, that's even lower than a dog. There was far less compassion for those who had physical disabilities back then. Most were considered cursed. I mean, we get the best example of that from Jesus' wonderful disciples. Here they go up, they march up, they climb up the stairs, they go into the temple, they worship the Lord, they're having this great day, Jesus is teaching. Then they come out on the southern steps and they notice this guy who's blind. They're like, hey, there's a blind guy who's begging every day. And they say, hey, Jesus, which guy sinned, this guy or his parents that he's this way? Jesus is way nicer than I am because that's when I push them all down the steps. Let's see how it feels for you being crippled. As they're falling down, who sinned, you know? That's how you are viewed. You're cursed. Either something horrible you did or something horrible your family did. He's a dead dog. In addition to that, he has no resources to defend himself. Shown by the fact that David can just fetch him. He can't go anywhere. He's literally in the worst possible position a person could be before the king. But you know, these words are familiar to us just in the previous chapter. When God says, "David, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to do all this for you. Messiah is going to come from your line, your son's going to build me a temple. I'm going to do all these things for you." And David is just dumbfounded. And in 2 Samuel 7:18, then went King David in, and he sat before the Lord, and he said, "Who am I, O Lord, God? And what's my house that you've brought me this far?" Mephibosheth experienced the mercy and the grace of David's loyal love, just as David had experienced the mercy and grace of the Lord's loyal love. And if we want to have hearts that are after God, if we want to be those who have hearts, our desire needs to be to be those who keep our promises and who show mercy and grace to the undeserved.
1: This has been In the Word